Hello everyone, and welcome to this episode of Numa. I am, with undiminished zeal, in the pursuit of your health, happiness, and well-being, your humble friend and host, Daniel Finnerin. Thank you so very much for joining me today. If you find this content to be insightful, enjoyable, stimulating, or soothing, do consider subscribing to my modest little channel and helping it grow. Be sure in the process to share your favorite episode with a close friend and a family member to whom it might be congenial. For today's episode, you needn't do a thing but breathe and listen. Let's take a moment and reconnect with our breath. Wherever you are, let your mind settle. Begin to feel yourself in your own body. If your shoulders are elevated, raised, and tense, allow them to relax and fall. If your jaw is clenched and tight, Allow it now to relax. Let the knots in your temples, on the left and right sides of your head, let them come undone. Soften your gaze. Unfurrow your brow. Take note of the pace, the depth, and the quality of your breath. Breathe in through the nose, expand the abdomen, and exhale through the nose, contracting the abdomen. 
Very good. The topic that we'll address today is one with which philosophers, theologians, bloggers, podcast hosts, and average people like you and me have been grappling since the dawn of our species' existence. It's the topic by which, once our nourishment and lodging were secured, and our curiosity was given a wider license to wonder. Our primitive minds were totally occupied. That topic is life after death. Have we only one single go at existence? Or are we destined to live again? The unanswerable question of whether or not the spirit survives the body and is in some distant time and place reincarnated is one that we've all been haunted by. To have been vexed by this question is as near a universal human experience as anything to which we've all been, no matter our condition, subjected, and from which no one has ever been exempt. We're all unsettled in our eschatology. Even the most faithful among us can't know with complete certainty what's to come. Even he is, to some extent, imperfectly assured of what awaits him beyond the grave. To grossly simplify what is, by any measure, a difficult concept, there are two possibilities that await us when we die. First, upon the cessation of our life, both the body and the soul perish, and we are, in all our parts, both corporeal and spiritual, utterly extinguished. Alternatively, the moment at which we die is not, in fact, the absolute end, but a transitional point along a line that stretches infinitely into the future. The physical body, of course, 
is dead. But the spirit survives and, perhaps, finds its home in heaven, in which it's reunited with God. Or it goes on to inhabit the flesh of a different organism elsewhere. On which side of this question I come down, I'll not hear say. As for the Stoics, to whom we often refer, they believed that life is lived not once, but repeatedly. They did not believe, however, in the survival of the spirit beyond the death of the body. They were staunch materialists. They believed, like Democritus and the Epicureans, with whom they're often favorably contrasted, that everything is composed of atoms. They subscribed to the atomic theory. According to their physics, there can be nothing that is non-atomic. There can be no purely spiritual matter. They believed that the entire universe was, after a certain interval, completely destroyed, only to be reborn again. All the atoms would be renewed, and this cycle would repeat itself in perpetuity, ad infinitum. It happened again and again, forever. This idea of eternal recurrence around which the cosmology of Stoicism revolved is now considered, if it's even considered at all, to be peripheral to the core of that philosophy. We hardly think of Stoicism as being concerned with anything beyond this life. Its wisdom is so eminently practical. Its teachings are so immediate and useful, so suitable to the here and now. Friedrich Nietzsche, the 
the great German philosopher picks up where the Stoics left off. Nietzsche, a classical philologist by training, or one who studies the languages of ancient Greece and Rome, was unsurprisingly fluent in this abstruse Stoic doctrine. The doctrine of the eternal recurrence, Nietzsche said, of the unconditional and infinitely repeated circular course of all things. This doctrine might have been taught already by Heraclitus, at least the Stoics, who inherited almost all their principal ideas from Heraclitus, show traces of it. There we have an acknowledgement by Nietzsche of the inscrutable source from whom he draws this concept of eternal return. Heraclitus, a captivating and mysterious figure, is categorized as a pre-Socratic. As an aside, this nomenclature, this method of identification, doubtless bespeaks the importance of Athens' greatest man, Socrates, before and after whose death, not unlike Jesus, the ages are defined. A philosopher from the city of Ephesus, an area of intellectual ferment on the coast of modern-day Turkey, Heraclitus is best known for having developed the doctrine of flux. In the timeless debate between being and becoming, Heraclitus was on the side of the latter. One of his extant sayings, of which there are but a fragmentary few, is that no man ever steps in the same river twice, for it's not the same river, and he's not the same man. an idea pregnant with meaning, to which we could and probably shall dedicate an entire episode in the future. We'll pursue it no further here. We'll stop to content ourselves, rather, with the knowledge that Heraclitus was probably among the first serious philosophers to formalize the doctrine of eternal return. 
of which the Stoics were the inheritors and Nietzsche much later on in the history of thought. The ultimate master. We return to him now. Whereas the doctrine of eternal recurrence is a peripheral feature of Stoic and Heraclitean philosophy, it is, for Nietzsche, of central importance. As such, I'll leave its description to him, rather than hear me sum it up. I want you to listen to the arresting and inimitable way in which Nietzsche expresses it. In the gay science, just before the prophet Zarathustra lights upon the village square, Nietzsche asks us to imagine the following arresting scenario. Listen carefully. What if some day or night a demon were to steal after you into your loneliest loneliness and say to you, this life as you now live it and have lived it, you will have to live once more and innumerable times more. And there will be nothing new in it, but every pain and every joy and every thought and sigh must return to you, all in the same succession and sequence. The eternal hourglass of existence is turned over again and again, and you with it, speck of dust. Would you not throw yourself down and gnash your teeth and curse the demon who spoke thus? Or have you once experienced a tremendous moment when you would have answered him? You are a god, and never have I heard anything more divine. If this thought were to gain possession of you, it would change you as you are, or perhaps crush you. The question in each and everything, do you want this once more, 
and innumerable times more would lie upon your actions as the greatest weight. Indeed, it is a weight beneath which, with trembling knees, most of us would collapse. It's for this reason that Nietzsche, in a different work, called this idea the heaviest of burdens. The heaviest of burdens. Think about it. Each and every single action you take in your life, regardless of its triviality or its significance, would be repeated interminably. You might just begin to take the things you do a bit more seriously, no? Your response to that insult, your choice to switch careers, your interaction with your spouse, everything. That would add no small weight to your decisions and your actions, would it not? Every action, every decision, every movement would be attended by a new and heavy type of gravity. Contrarily, the opposite of Nietzsche's doctrine of eternal return is what the Czech-French author Milan Gundra calls the lightest of burdens. It's an unbearably light existence whose moments occur only once, never to be repeated again. This is, in Kundra's opinion, a life devoid of significance. It is the meaninglessness that the characters in his masterful book, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, suffer. For a longer exposition of Kundra's book and the philosophy by which it's suffused, you can check out a video that I recently posted on my sister YouTube channel, Finnerin's Wake, in which I describe it as the work that's had the biggest impact on me thus far in the year 2023. Upon you, Dear friend, uh, should you decide to read it, I think it'll be equally impactful.
Let's return to Nietzsche. How would you respond to his demon? Recall, this demon by whom you are visited informs you that you will have to live your life as you live it now, innumerable times more. Again and again and again ad infinitum. It will recur interminably, and nothing about it will change. Mind you, this life that you will relive innumerable times isn't a future, better, hypothetical life to which you currently aspire, for which you have vivid and lovely dreams. No. This is the life that you live at present, and have lived heretofore. gets you to thinking. Thus far, have I lived a good life? Has it been meaningful, purposeful, happy? Would it be worth living again? Do I even like my life? Would I rejoice at the prospect of living it anew? Or would I consider its repetition the cruelest of all punishments? By the recurrence of which moments am I especially mortified or ashamed? Among all the moments, which would I most wish not to have to relive? On the balance, have I experienced more good or more bad moments? Have I been a good or a bad person? Would it be the heaviest of burdens to live my life again? Or would it be light and easy and fun? Your response to those questions will determine just how warmly you receive the demon. If, heretofore, you've led a good, fulfilled, purposeful, and happy life, you would exalt him as a benefactor and a god. The demon would be suddenly raised to the status of the divine. 
If, on the other hand, you've let a bad, insipid, meaningless, and unhappy life, you would curse the demon who spoke to you thus, and secure with all promptitude his return to hell. I don't mean for you to adopt the doctrine of eternal recurrence as your newfound cosmology or religion. That's not at all my purpose. Rather, I want you to use it as a thought experiment by which you might change and improve your life. To this life of yours, what alterations would you make if you were destined to relive it without end? If you were to bear this heaviest of burdens, how would you prepare yourself? How would you conduct yourself? How would you lighten its load? How, above all, would you live? I know, as it pertains to my life, there are many things I would change. Many things, indeed. At present, I would be in the camp of those who are cursing the demon. Of this, I'm assured. I'd be cursing the demon with undiluted venom. Of everyone, I'd be the most vociferous in my denunciation of him. But the goal, I think, is to construct a life that you'd eagerly and willingly want to live again and again and again forevermore. Thank you so much for joining me on this meditation. I know, this one was a bit deep. For that, I do apologize. For all the heavy meditations, I promised to deliver a lighter variety as well, between which, hopefully, a nice balance can be struck. Be sure to send me feedback at numa.finnerin at gmail.com. I'm eager to know if you like or dislike this type of content. Until next time, fare thee well from Numa.